Welcome back to the Level Up Experience. This podcast is a previously recorded live stream panel from the Gamer Jive Esports and Gaming Virtual Career Fest. The panel is entitled Esports Post-COVID, How Does It Look? The panelists were Chris Smith, founder of Big Esports, Jake Zinn, founder of Esports Supply, Brett Diamond, the COO at Wise Ventures in Minnesota Rocker, Eric Alexander, founder of Aerosports, and Marcus Howard, the founder of Project NQ. Some of the topics we discuss range from the CDL pivot from in-person to online competitions, is esports only segmented toward pro competition play, have endemic and non-endemic brands been more involved in esports over the last few months, does the value of virtual events exceed live events when measuring engagement metrics. Thanks again to all the panelists for taking the time. I really enjoyed moderating the panel and hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, the way I want to start is in order here. So I'm going to start with Jake and work our way down. Um, I'd like for you guys to tell a little bit about yourselves, take about two or three minutes about how you're involved in the esports space and a little bit about your story of how you've gotten into the industry. Yeah, sure. I'll kick things off. I appreciate you, Chris, for having us, uh, having us all on today. It's a great panel. Uh, a couple of friends in this group, a couple of new faces. Uh, appreciate everybody coming together. Uh, my name is Jake Zinn. I'm a co-founder and vice president of business development for Esports Supply. We'd like to integrate technology and professional design services to make creating custom esport experiences as simple as possible. Uh, my journey in really the gaming starts at a very young age. Uh, some of my earliest memories of my mom were watching her play Zelda. Uh, always grew up a console kid. Um, grew up, have a couple of sons myself that are pretty, pretty good at gaming. Uh, it's definitely a way for us to stay connected. I started the company out of really just a passion. I have a background in VCs, working as an operator, uh, helping start, scale, and, and exit out of businesses. And so the opportunity came to um, you know, do something that I love, and I, and I chose to take my love of technology and professional design and figure out the best way to, uh, to help create really custom eSport experiences. So couldn't be more excited to be here and um, really excited about the future of eSports and what it looks like kind of post-COVID and excited to have this conversation today. Hi, Brett. Yeah, thanks. Brett Diamond with Minnesota Rocker, uh, COO. Uh, we're a team in the Call of Duty League. Uh, my background, um, I was with the Minnesota Vikings for uh, three years before joining this organization uh, about a year ago. Um, and prior to that, I was with the NFL and their events department uh, for 11 years. And over that time, worked on a variety of roles, uh, both on the operations and the business and marketing side of the NFL's major events. And when I came to the Vikings, um, I was, I, I, I had never worked in the esports space, but was, was fascinated by, um, by everything about it really. And my joke, and it's not really a joke because it's true is I, I could have, um, I could have told you more about overwatch the league from, uh, from just, just reading all about it and the business model and how it was structured then I could overwatch the game because I was just so fascinated by um, esports leagues that were launching and how organizations were structured. Um, and I started overseeing the Vikings esports initiatives and slowly but surely became more involved in, um, in that side of things as the Will family who owns the Vikings as well as our organization 
uh, was starting to look at potential investments in the space. Um, and about a year ago, when they secured the rights to a Call of Duty League slot, they uh, tapped me on the shoulder and asked me if I was interested in in switching roles and and doing this uh, doing this full time. And it was uh, an incredible opportunity, and jumped at the chance. And it's frankly been a been a wild ride ever since. Um, but uh, excited to uh, excited to be here and, and chat with everybody, Marcus. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm an identical twin. My brother and I got Super Mario Brothers 3 for Christmas when we were six. Been playing video games ever since. Uh, we started building our first indie game on the TI-83 Plus graphing calculator in ninth grade. Fast forward 10 years, uh, we started building our own game and recognized that game discovery was the largest opportunity and problem in the global industry. So we built a multimedia search engine exclusively for indie games. And by 2018, we had scaled it to 40 countries and picked and discovered and curated 100 amazing games from around the world. Uh, PayPal selected us out of their 20,000 applicants nationwide as their top digital service of 2018. Uh, in 2019, we pivoted from there to a larger opportunity we saw on the B2B2C side. So we are now a family-friendly, esports-focused experiential marketing agency that leverages that same network of amazing indie games to help colleges and other brands more effectively engage with younger audiences. And we're really excited about the project we're working on for the Super Bowl next year because the Super Bowl is coming here to Tampa Bay. So a one-of-a-kind kind of Steam esports gaming blockchain experience. Eric? Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, Eric Alexander, founder of Era Sports. I guess what Era does is we've built a, a tournament platform. I guess... You know, a good way of putting it is sort of virtualizing the amateur uh, tournament scene. Um, you know, it includes everything from key management, tournament management, league management, um, payment integration. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a one, one-stop shop uh, turnkey solution uh, for tournament organizers. Um, a little bit about my background is you know, I, I've been a gamer for about as long as I can remember, but where I really sort of found my niche in gaming was when I was in college. Um, and I went to school to be a web developer. Uh, I, I Instead of web development, I discovered I liked modding games. Um, so I started modding, you know, making tons of mods for a game called Arma 3. And at that point, I, I figured, you know, this game is easy to integrate with. I'm going to create a, a tournament platform and integrate it with this mod I've created. Um, from there, you know, it just kind of grew, brought on more people. Um, I guess it started as a, a passion project and turned into a business. And Chris? Hey, guys. My name's Chris Smith. I've been around the esports industry kind of on every side of the fence for the last 10 to 12 years or so as a player, working in power and marketing and journalist. Um, and kind of everything else on on every every side of what have you that could happen from building servers to doing marketing on the ground, keynote speeches, trade shows, etc. These days, I run my own company, Big Esports, and we specialize in esports consultancy around the world with a lot of clients, as well as doing a lot of work in the gaming and influencer space. And you might have seen me posting some content on LinkedIn as well. Thanks, guys, for sharing. really appreciate that. Give a little context to everyone. Just a quick shout-out to everybody on LinkedIn, YouTube. Feel free to post comments and questions throughout because uh, we can pull those up, uh, and now we can pull those up on LinkedIn to where you can actually see them. 
Uh, so feel free to do that because we want this to be an ongoing conversation with you. So feel free to do that and we will get to those. Uh, we have a couple of questions. Um, I really want to, I want to start here. Um, I'd actually like to start with Brett. That's okay. Um, and we're going to, and somebody can pick this up uh, after Brett as well. But I want to talk a little bit about the the shift from, um, you know, in-person events to online competition for teams and how that's affected, you know, how has that affected players, uh, the league, and just kind of the, um, overall the last few months uh, with COVID, how that's affected um, those different areas. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's interesting because when I think back to the conversations that we were having as an organization and and with the leadership at CDL and Activision, you're really we started talking about potential contingency plans back in in late February, and I imagine the league level they were talking about them even before that. And you know, I, I think the leadership at um, at CDL did a great job of, of communicating with teams, taking a lot of feedback. Um, we had discussions even before um, the Los Angeles event, which was the last live event uh, before everything moved online. And it's interesting when I think when an outsider looks at, at the space or when I say an outsider, you know, somebody that, um, you know, that isn't privy to the, to the internal discussions and they think, yep, no brainer to, to shift to online. That's super easy. Um, there were a number of considerations that, and I'm sure every esports league went through it, um, in terms of okay, how fast can we make the switch? Um, what does it mean from a competitive standpoint? Um, what guidelines need to be put in place if players are playing from home? What equipment do they need that might be different than than what they just need to stream on a you know on a daily basis? Um, you know, for for our league, and I imagine all the others. You know, if you're if you're based in, you know, obviously an evolving situation, but if you're in a state that that's under a stay at home order, well, production people can't come to the studio or to where they would normally do. So everything has to be done out of the cloud. Um, so a number of considerations that are far more complex and frankly, far more complex than I realized uh, heading into it. I probably had had the view, which many did was, yeah, that that's a no brainer. That'll be really easy to switch to an online format. Um, and it's you know far more complicated from a technical standpoint than than I realized at the time. Um, you know, from a team perspective, we made the decision early on to let our players do what they thought was best from a where are they going to live during this period? We have all of our players on a normal, you know, under normal circumstances living in Minnesota, where you know we're one of only a handful of CDL teams that requires that. And that was a big part of our identity as an organization and even as a team down to the coaches and the players. Um, but, but right from the start, we said to the players, look, if you prefer, if you prefer to be, you know, with your family, with your parents or, you know, your, your fiance or whoever, you know, whoever's important to you and they don't live in Minnesota, we understand that. And, and we were fully supportive of, of players that chose to, um, you know, to live elsewhere. Um, so, you know, from an organizational standpoint, at the end of the day, whether it's players, staff um, or anyone involved, you know, we've just tried to you know, be as open and as accessible um, as possible for whatever, you know, whatever people need. And, and we've got a great, you know, great coaching staff and a great group of players that, you know, that really have done a good job of, of, of staying focused and continuing to prepare and compete at a high level and we've got our next online tournament this weekend. So we're excited about it. 
Any other overarching thoughts from anybody else? So Chris, I guess maybe as an ex-player, um, maybe put yourself in that in, in the shoes of, of um, players on, on Rocker and, and what what's going through your mind when potentially you'd have to go through something like this as a former CS:GO player. Yeah, playing at playing at home versus playing at a live event is like entirely different. Like a mm-hmm. direct example is I sponsored back in around 2012 time. I, I sponsored a New Zealand Counter Strike Source team to come over to Australia. You know, by sponsoring them, I gave them like a thousand dollars, which helped them with some of the travel expenses. And you know, for those guys, they were ranked probably 16th in Australia. But because they were so used to playing at live events, they always practice an internet cafe. They're all too you know, they, they're all too poor to be able to afford computers at home. The internet in New Zealand was terrible at that time. So they were used to they were used to playing in an uncomfortable environment and they were able to use that to their advantage to place third in that tournament match. They were very loud, proud in, and in charge. One major thing you see with players is a difference too. They're much more timid when they're on land than when they're on online. Because when you're online you're not an you're in a comfortable environment. You're in a chair you're used to. You're using a even a table that's the right height that you're used to, the same monitor. You're much more comfortable. Um, but you need to get used to being uncomfortable in an uncomfortable environment. So for me as a player, that's why I started running live events and playing in them at the same time because in CSGO, no one was doing that. So I thought, well, hey, if I want some live experience to be able to play internationally eventually, like I need to be able to do that. So it's going to be interesting to see the difference in performance and potential difference in performance, especially with rookies um, who aren't used to playing live in front of a crowd, aren't used to that uncomfortable zone. And I was I was definitely not good at it at all. A, a thing that really messed me up was different, and you would never think about this, but something that messed me up a lot was different heights of desks. That really messed with me, not being able to be perfectly comfortable. Because if you look at a lot of the StarCraft two players in the GSL in Korea, you will literally see them bust out the ruler to set up their exact setup they'll have the keyboard the mouse pad the mouse will be a certain amount of centimeters away from the ruler and it's, it's kind of similar when you're setting your sensitivity in counter-strike you know you need to know that you've got a 30 centimeter 180 which is about what i have about a 27 centimeter 180 in counter-strike and things like that too so you need to get really familiar with those things and it can be hard when you're um, you know, not used to playing from those live events. So we might see some slight differences in gameplay from people who aren't feeling the pressure as much playing from home. I actually have a question for Brett. Um, <clears throat> now that you guys are in the swing of, of running these online tournaments and on this online platform, have you guys seen a difference between in like fan engagement or you know, I guess from a C-suite perspective, what's been the impact there? Yeah, so far the viewer numbers have been have been pretty similar. Uh, to what we saw uh, before um, before we were online, um, from an organizational perspective, we spent a lot of time thinking about the things that we had done well to engage the fans, or the things that that fans had been responding to, and how do we how do we put those into an online environment? Um, so, for example, we had we had seen some success hosting watch parties. Uh, for our for our CDL matches during live events, um, sure. so we we had we had hosted the first event of the season in Minnesota, and then for the two tournaments we played in um, on land in Atlanta and LA, we had watch parties at a at a bar uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, and it was funny the first time we did that, we were expecting we didn't really know what to expect. We were thinking, like I literally said to the staff the 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 Friday before, as right before we left for uh, for Atlanta said, hey, if 10 people show up and they're rocker fans and they have a good time and they walk away, 
you know, feeling more, you know, more a part of this team than they did before. That's, you know, that's time well spent. So, you know, we were, we weren't sure what to expect in terms of numbers and it turned out, you know, 75 plus people showed up that day and then more came back for the next match and we filled the bar up and then had to spill over into a second room. So, you know, we looked at that, which was one of the things that we were excited about um, was our philosophy was, okay, if there are 75 people and they have a good time and each one brings a friend. And so the next time it was 125 people. So it didn't quite double, but you know, we sure. felt like that was, that's really how we can make tangible progress, building a fan base in a new market with a new team and a new league. And so we said to ourselves, how do we, how do we take that and move it online? And so uh, we've been having watch part, watch party, virtual watch parties um, in our discord channel. And actually I see, um, uh, actually, it looks like he dropped off, but I saw it. Uh, Dylan Pomeroy was in was in the chat uh, a few minutes ago, um, who's been uh, who's been leading the staff on our side um, um, with our Discord efforts, um, and we've seen you know hundreds of rocker fans in there, you know, having a great time and you know commenting on you know commenting on the the performance of the team, and we've even had players, parents, and and uh, uh, Silly's aunt was in there and cool. several players and coaches, parents. So it's just like a really, really great vibe, like truly a family atmosphere. It's a lot of fun. And every, every tournament we've added something. So the second, uh, the second event we added um, live commentary um, with uh, Doug Cortez, who's a local caster. Um, who we've worked with on some things and, um, and Ashley Glassell Midnight, who's, um, who's our director of content, you know, very well-known uh, person in the call of duty scene. So the two of them were doing commentary between matches, which was the first time we had, we had experimented with any sort of live content on match days. And we're going to try to take that to the next level uh, with, with the tournament this weekend. Um you know, and so just across the board, we tried to think about, okay, how can we continue to create content during this time? How can sure, we do yeah. that fans seem to resonate uh, towards uh, previously? How do we translate those? Um, and how do we just, how do we just stay connected um, to the fans and just keep, grow, keep, you know, keep engaging, keep growing the fan base? What are some ideas from the panel of how to keep fans engaged during this time? I was going to say, could I chime in there for yeah, a second? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it's you know it's been it's been kind of cool uh, watching you guys pivot from in person to online. I, I actually think the online, um, just from what I've seen at least, more of the fans are interacting with each other than they were than as if it was at a bar or something. Um, sort of that physical barrier is kind of gone. Um, so that's that's been kind of cool. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. What has been uh, some of the feedback from those like on Discord and and things you mentioned some of the watch parties, uh, some of the some of the feedback on that, like what the feeling was like and how the engagement was. I'm just curious. Yeah, it seems to have been really positive. Um, we've we've seen. Uh, I, I, I'm blanking on the numbers off the top of my head, and I don't want to say incorrect numbers, but sure. uh, we've definitely seen growth both in in the Discord audience overall, and then huge spikes on match day. Um, in terms of, you know, obviously number of messages, but uh, people on the channel, et cetera. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned, we've got players, families in the chat. You know, somebody gives a shout out to, 
you know, to silly because he has a great play um, or gives a shout. You know, the casters give a shout out to the coaching staff and you've got the coaches moms in the chat and they're responding. And that we were playing Mother's Day weekend. So that was a lot of fun. Um, You know, we very much had a mentality from the start of building the fan base one fan at a time. And there's no there's no interaction that's when you're. I said before, when you're a new team in a new league, there's no interaction that's too small to be valuable, right? Right. Literally, if if we can have a conversation with one fan or one person and that person becomes a rocker fan, um, you know, that's time well spent for anybody in the organization, whether you're, you know, you're an intern or an executive or anything in between. No, I appreciate insight coming from the CDL league. It's just interesting to see how um, that engagement has changed. You know, and then the feedback on the on the backside of it. Um, actually, I do want to uh, shift. We've got some questions coming in on YouTube and LinkedIn, so I'm pull this up from Justin on YouTube. Uh, do you guys think the term esports is only exclusive to competitive play? For example, Ninja being framed as an esports athlete. I mean, my opinion, honestly, having you know children, and and really, I really try to pay a lot of attention to. And I work with a lot of colleges, right? So I'm always looking at with the 15, 16, 17, down to 12 year old, how they view things. And I got to, I got to tell you, I, I think that's just a term we as adults try to, to categorize things. I think in their mind, if I pulled my seven year old in here and asked him that same question, I don't think he would even register that to be two different things. I think in their mind, it's, it's video games and you know, whether they're playing Fortnite or they're, I'm taking them to dream hack and we're, and we're watching what's going on down there, or he's, you know, using it to learn math on his computer I think it's all video games to, to them. And so, you know, I, I think esports and, and gaming in general should just embrace everybody that's doing it. And the, the really we should shift the focus into let's educate more and more people versus bickering back and forth on, on maybe what's considered what is an esport and what's not. I think that in a, in a large degree turns off a lot of people. And I think the people who are going to be replacing the current infrastructure of esport players and organizations and people involved in the industry uh, coming from that rising generation, I just, I don't think they're going to care one way or the other. Marcus or Chris? Yeah, I think you're going to have two different or, or multiple categories of esports as you kind of widen and broaden the definition. Um, the way that I look at it is the same basically the, the same frame as, as the difference between a varsity basketball team, right? Which may have 15 to 20 people on the team. And then the number of people who can play a pickup game of basketball, right? That's hundreds if not thousands of people. So I think you'll have layers there where you have professional play, you know, professional broadcasted play, and then the, the same version of that at the collegiate level. Uh, but then this, this more recreational, um, intramural experience where more people can be introduced into esports, and that's where you start to see it expand into mobile and maybe older demographics and younger demographics, where it's not just that core like sixteen to twenty-four demographic. Yeah, I, I thought Justin would ask this question because we talked about it just before we went live, <laughs> and I was talking about like the difference between gaming and esports and how I've just kind of given up really on trying to put solid definitions because the lines are too blurry. And a, a thing I've talked about in content a few times is that, you know, if you ask a lot of hardcore esports people, they'd say, no, like like no way there could be a, you know, there could be a possibility that ninjas and esports athlete is not a pro. But then you could say, well, he competes in tournaments in the past he's, he's won money in apex legends and Fortnite, at competing against other people who are pros and aren't pros so does that mean that 
you know, he's an esports athlete, probably. But I think ultimately it was a really good reply from Jake. I like that. I'm going to steal that and use that for sure. Because it's like, what does the audience think? And I've talked about this in content before. I've tried to get more and more players onto my podcast because I feel like all the time we as esports professionals and business people talk about what's best for the players that are actually asking them. But that's saying to them, like, guys, do you actually like the things that we're developing? Do you like these league structures that we're creating? Um, and talking to the kids as well, saying like, what do you care about? Do they care about a franchise league with a set salary? Or do they, or do they care about Fortnite where it's a free for all and it's just chaos? Like, yeah, just talking to the up and comers about what they exactly want. And obviously we need to help guide with some skills and experience that we have in the business realm. But yeah, I think it's important to lean on them a little bit more for their opinions. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. And, and Marcus's point is really good and, and to expand on it a little bit. So if you, if you, so we're a team in the CDL, right? And if the you, you have an enormous number of people obviously playing Call of Duty and right now playing Warzone specifically, if somebody like Ninja or somebody else who's who's a who's a streamer that you know that penetrates the consciousness of somebody that isn't aware, isn't a fan of the CDL. Like if they see Ninja streaming streaming Warzone, and that starts them down the funnel where you know now maybe they're consuming more Warzone content, and then they come across a rocker player or any player in the CDL uh, that's streaming Warzone, and now suddenly you know now suddenly we're pulling people in to potentially become fans of our league and our team. So it's you know whether they're whether they're considered to be an esports athlete or not you know, it, it's all part of this, you know, part of the ecosystem and, and can all be a positive uh, the way we think about it. You know, I guess you can, you can almost make another parallel to regular sports um, or uh, stick and ball. Um, so I, I was a ski racer when I was younger. I don't race anymore, but I still ski. You know, it's still... Still who you are, yeah. Yeah, I'm not actually competing, but I'm still doing the sport. Yeah, and you, you know, it's sort of a, a tale as old as time in in traditional sports, where okay, our you know our golfers, athletes, our NASCAR drivers, athletes, right? It's you know, it's always a fun topic for fans to debate of where you, where you draw that line. Yeah, and so Robert says, an esports competitive game designed purely for competition. Like Valorant, that's from LinkedIn. And talking about Ninja, um, Robert also ended up saying he he also owns teams, um, which is also supporting up and coming gamers. Um, so lifestyle, uh, yeah, the lines have really been blurred between esports and gaming, and it, it is difficult to be able to have two definitions for the two and separate them out. So. Um, I always think it's an interesting conversation around that. Uh, I do want to grab another one, and then we've got a couple other questions. Um, do you feel that the pandemic creating lack of physical sports is helping esports popularity? Absolutely. Did you expect Did you expect more coverage from media such as ESPN due to there being limited sports to cover? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take because I have some thoughts to share on this. It's kind of a world we've been living in recently. Um, yes, right. I think you see probably more and more people of means that invest in esports right now at home for the first time. Like, what is my kid doing all day? What is he is on this? And then they go to turn on ESPN or they go to look for sports and that's missing. 
Uh, so I think it definitely has. You look at, you know, what 2K League's done since they've started launching out. They've been put on ESPN. You think you look at a lot of other things. I think in a, in a large way it has. But I think what it ultimately has done is just shown a light on what was already happening. So I don't know if the pool has grown tremendously as much as just the more mainstream infrastructure, people who would never look at esports or watch video games as entertainment before, for the first time that's being presented as the only option. And I think they're just waking up to the fact like, wow, this is really cool. I get this, I understand this. And then, you know, uh, as you can probably look at the numbers, Chris probably know more than I would, but looking at the numbers of, uh, you know, amount of video game revenue, the new consoles, like we're in the supply business, right? So. We're always out there trying to sell PCs and consoles and stuff like that. And if you look at the supply chain and, and the amount of that stuff that's just been cleared out at places like Best Buy and Micro Center and stuff like that, I mean, it's a no-brainer that COVID has absolutely put a bigger light on esports and definitely has grown the just gaming overall, I think, not only from a player and investor pool, but just from the average casual fan, uh, I think, to, to Brett's point entering into that are starting to enter into that top of that funnel as they're still at home consuming i would argue probably more content than they were before uh, they don't have their commutes they're not as busy at work uh and with that really dominating what content is right now like it's i think it's a no-brainer that this has been a positive for the industry as and, and really just gaming in general You know, it's funny to see the the World Health Organization come out and actually promote gaming now. <laughs> like that. When a few weeks before that, it was the exact opposite, or what? Yeah, happened. changed your tune quickly. Yeah, huh? that tweet that was side by side. Yeah. But I think what's really interesting is you have people who are critical of esports. Um, you know, several years ago, saying, "Why would you sit in front of a screen and watch other people play a game?" When when you think of traditional sports, you're doing the exact same thing through the TV. So to see esports now on TV, you can help bridge that gap for people who didn't quite understand what was happening. I was on a Zoom call real quick. I was on a Zoom call two weeks ago, and they said, "Why would people watch other people play games?" I said, "You watch people cook." Yeah, exactly. That's a lot. They, they, they stopped. They laughed. They all laughed. They're like, "Oh," and they're like, "Yeah." That's all I had to say. Like, they, I, I am definitely going to use that one. That is that <laughs> is really. Good. <laughs> You know, it's mainstream, you know, laggards or whatever. And they're, they're just like, oh. And they, they literally out loud just kind of like, you know, had the idea bubble. So anyway, I and, thought. And to that same point, you know, cooking shows, because I've been watching a lot of Netflix lately, have gone like extreme production that look pretty much like, you know, what you would expect at a major, you know, like going to see Rock at CDL. I mean, it's big stage, big production, live audiences. So, yeah, that's a perfect example. Yeah, Charles had a, another question up there. I'm going to grab this one, though. Uh, well, having more tournaments and more possibilities in the summer opened up for more youth camps, specifically on developing youth on esports. And, uh, Marcus, I'd like to get your take on this. I think it's going to open up more opportunities, but it's it's still going to depend on there being education for the parents, right? Because it's, it's hard for someone who's been, as a parent, who's seen that screen time is bad uh, for years, right, to make the connection between not only is there a professional career opportunity in competitive play or streaming, but the non-streaming competitive pieces of the gaming industry. Again, game development, uh, broadcast, writing, all the business components that make that happen. Uh, so I, I think it will open up the demand, but 
the education has to be there because you still have that barrier of that that negative, uh, you know, the stigma associated with esports and gaming. That that stigma, and that, especially when you can I can I comment on that? Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody jump in? Absolutely. Cool. Um, so it's you know it's been interesting at least watching locally. Um, sort of that stigma. I don't want to say melt away, but slowly get um, chiseled away over time. Um, and I, I think one one reason why that's happening is, you know, parents are watching their kids. Um, they're seeing that, oh, they're communicating, they're talking like a real sport. Like there's strategy, they have to plan, they have a coach. Um, you know, just seeing what's going on sort of legitimizes it. Um, it's and, and right now, obviously, we're front and center. That's a great point. That's a good point. I, I should mention something though. There are some, you know, for instance, there's one, uh, I guess, one high school locally here that they it's either hit or miss whether high schools want to support it or not. Um, and if they don't support it, what do you do? You know, we have one here that went out and started a nonprofit club. Um, you know, well, I, it makes me wonder what that'll look like in two years. Will the school want the club back at the school, or will the the nonprofit still function as the school's club? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Anybody else have thoughts on what that might look like? I think, to his point, I, I think the school will probably want to take that back in, right? I think we've got, if you look at just the data around youth participation in sports, it's on the decline at the same time the cost has been rising. Uh, and I think a lot of parents are taking that into an account, you know, also into to Marcus's point around screen time. I, you know, directly to, to Charles' question, you know, I don't know if it's this summer. Quite honestly, most of the, you know, I've been on a lot of calls with colleges and uh, high schools kind of around the country. Most aren't even sure they're going to be open at this point. Um, so I'm not sure about this summer, but the, the concept of summer camps like, absolutely. And I think if, we, if people could figure out how to do that in an online uh, way and get that out and promoted, I think, you know, there's a, I know a lot of school districts where I live right now, there's no summer school. Right. And so and there we just got off of homeschool. And so some of us are not having to go back into the office. And so something like a summer camp that maybe it lives at home and my kids connected for four or five hours a day, uh, you know, an esport camp for sure. But I think getting people into a physical space in the next six to 12 months is honestly going to be pretty difficult. Yeah. You know, I'll take it in a, in a slightly different direction, even thinking beyond the summer. So, you know, let's fast forward to the fall and, you know, there's discussions about, you know, schools potentially being two days a week or three days a week or something like that. Um, and ultimately, so you think about the parent side of it and if you're a parent, and I say this as a parent that has three kids under five years old, right. And two working work and both my wife and I working full time, like the need for kids to find things to do and be productive with their time will just continue to grow the longer as a society where we are from, you know, going back to you know, business as usual. Right. Um, and so I could foresee a, a situation come the fall where if kids are in school two days a week, um, the other three days of the week, there will be something to fill that gap. And anytime there's a need, somebody will find a solution for it, right? 
um, whether it's esports related or something else. And so that'll be something pretty interesting to see how that unfolds um, over time. I mean, look, obviously we all hope that, you know, that this situation is resolved, you know, sooner rather than later. But I think the reality is that, you know, it, it, it could be a long time before everything is, you know, truly back to business as usual in, in whatever form that is. No, I think it's a good point. And it just keeps being amplified the longer it goes on. Exactly like you said. No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, we got some questions coming in. I will get to those as much as we can, you guys. Really appreciate you all jumping in on the stream. Uh, Chris, I wanted to shift to you. Uh, I wanted to talk about this because we um, had an investing in esports panel two panels ago. Um, and we, we talked about talked about obviously, you know, traditional sports went to zero and that whole conversation of um, you know, then the attention comes to esports. So, how has the conversations uh, been the last couple of months uh, on the on the with brands, uh, endemic, non-endemic, and how has that kind of evolved over the last few months compared to maybe a couple quarters ago about how to get involved, how they're wanting to get involved in esports, and just how those conversations have changed. It's funny. I was I was asked to to provide um, some quotes for sponsorship news because they were going to write an article about you know what brands have really taken you know, taking this opportunity to jump ahead. And I have to be honest and say, I don't, I don't really know. Like I've seen a lot of the interest from sports. You know, we've been talking to everything from junior, you know, the Yarra Junior Football League here in Australia, which has 10,000 parents and 20,000 children that play Australian rules. You know, their interest in running tournaments, been talking to Baseball Australia. Um, and there's been a lot of investment interest as well. I mean, if, if nothing else, you might have seen in general business news, um, like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia just pumped a ton of money into US stocks. Um, and there's been a lot of interest in, in overseas parties, both from individuals and VCs and companies in continuing with investments and spinning them up even more so. But from the brand side of things, I haven't seen a lot of movement on there. The closest I would say is uh, the supercars, which is V8 supercars in Australia. Um, and, you know, they went to a fully online season. So they got literally every single one of their physical drivers was playing uh, in, a, in a regular type season online. And they said that their brands that are involved with them have seen, you know, massive success and have been really enjoying that. But I think a lot of brands right now are just sitting in a kind of uh, sit and wait mode. And that's the, that's the feedback I've gotten from KPMG as well. Um, where, you know, we were working with them to reach out to some of their large profile brands, but they said a lot of their brands are in the survive mode. So it's interesting to me, and I'd be interested to see if anyone else here has the same experience or anyone in the comments has seen. I've seen a lot of a lot of action from investors. I've seen a lot of action from individuals, say sports celebrities. I've seen a lot of action from sports themselves, but I haven't seen as much action from brands um, in, you know, whether endemic to the esports space or non-endemic. I would I would agree. I've seen the same from seen a lot, like you said, a lot of investors, a lot of personal interest, a lot of sports teams. I think every sports team on the planet right now is trying to figure out an esports strategy, uh, how that how that shapes out. I think they all have a different viewpoint of what that should be, but uh, I think ultimately you're going to see a lot more of that uh, down the pipeline. Um, but to, to your point, I, I have not mm. seen in some of the brands that we've talked to, right. We've had some engagements with brands. We've been trying to bring them in to do some college spaces and stuff. I think brands as a whole, right. are probably a little bit more careful with their marketing messages. I imagine a lot of marketing teams and advertising agencies right now are trying to figure out how to market and sell during this COVID area, um, and try to focus on that. So I think as we come out of this, 
I think you'll start to see the brands catch up. But right now, to, to Chris's point, I, I would echo the same. I haven't seen much. Definitely seen a ton of interest from sports teams and investors. But from a brand side of things, it's been uh, it's been a stalemate. And to and to add to that too, it's the you know it's the windows of these blue chip brands that we're trying to that that we're trying to reach out to, and those and they're very long you know sales processes. And I've I've been quite open about this in the past when I first started my company on myself. I naively said I'm going to be an esports consultant. I'm going to convince brands they need to invest into esports. But often you know as we all know here really well that you're often convincing a person who doesn't understand the product to purchase something they don't want necessarily. You know you're reaching out to um, you know let's say Nike back in the past before they worked in this space saying Nike you should sponsor an esports team. They go okay first up what the hell's esports? And two, who are you? <laughs> and then you have to start from that that space. And I think, you know, it's it's all part of those sales processes. And I talked about this extensively last night with with Robin McCannon from Excel, who's the previous, you know, global marketing director of Adidas. And, you know, he talks about this too. They're seeing a lot of interest in the space. But from my discussion with him, it, it echoes the same as like what I've said and, and what Jake was saying is that the conversations they've been having for the past six months, they're still having. So nothing's stopped. And nothing's necessarily sped up a lot either, but there's still a lot of a lot of interest in that space. But say so some of our endemic clients that we work with, they have paused or cancelled all of their Facebook advertising, for example. So they might still be doing their influencer advertising. Um, and there's a lot of interest from the YouTuber side. Most of my YouTuber friends are saying their ad revenue is down anywhere from 20 to, to 50%. So they're willing to take a, a, a cut on what they would generally sell ads for. So maybe that's just the part of it. You know, maybe that's why the Saudi government pumps so much money into US stocks because they're just dirt cheap right now. And the same with the influencers. You know, an influencer that, you know, we work with that would normally charge $7,000 for a pre-roll, they're doing it for two right now just because their ad revenue is down significantly. Yeah, and that, Chris, that's a great point on, on the length of the sales cycle. So as as a team, even if we were not in a pandemic situation right now, we would be thinking about what we're selling from a sp- sponsorship asset perspective in 2021. And so that's something that, you know, any organization that's selling to brands is probably already thinking on, on that timeline. Uh, but if you're a brand, you're going to be very cautious before you commit marketing dollars, even if it is a year out. Um, and so, you know, it'll be very interesting to, to watch how the market evolves and, and, and how those, you know, how those potential partnerships come through it. I mean, we're already thinking through a lens where, you know, we know that if we're doing a 2021 sponsorship deal, we're going to have to structure it in a way that reflects um, just the unknowns with with the current situation, and you know, I, I think any anybody that's trying to, you know, to sell a brand on a product, um, if you don't go into the conversation recognizing that you, you're going to have to provide them with some flexibility um, in 2021 um, for those unknowns, you know, you're you're if you if you fail to recognize that as a seller, you'll put yourself behind the eight ball, in my opinion. I'm seeing a bit of a different trend here locally, just, you know, in Tampa Bay, and, and it's not significant yet, but we've seen some interest from smaller businesses who want to understand how esports can draw foot traffic back to their businesses once everything reopen, reopens and how it can be an extension of, of social media. Um, but there's some concern that they don't think necessarily Call of Duty or Fortnite fits their brand, right? One example is a real estate company. You know, they don't think it makes sense for them to do a Call of Duty tournament. And, and so it, 
it will be interesting to see how the ecosystem grows to expand the definition like we talked about earlier of what is esports and what is an esports game because you have farming simulator right that's that's an esport experience it it happens to deal with farm equipment so it might make sense for a Lowe's or or John Deere since they've sponsored the tournament and you know a lot of the objects in that game have their brand on it yeah i think that's a good i think that's a good point for marcus and it's it's been something that i've been wanting to talk about in in my content is that i think there's a massive there's a massive gap in the market right now within esports for someone to help the little guys understand how they can get into the space. Everybody's trying to sell the Coca-Cola, everyone's trying to get the six-figure monthly contract and these kind of things. But you know, we've we've done a 70, 80 person fighting games tournament at a tiny burger store before. You know, we help them sell three thousand dollars of milkshakes in a day. So, you know, sometimes it's obvious that you can't chase those because a company might be structured like that. Maybe you've got investment and you're trying to make a digitally scalable product and working with a local real estate doesn't make sense. But still, there's so much money to be made in local. And obviously, Jake knows that, you know, with with what he's doing as well with his local city and some of his partners and, and founding members as well of, you know, of that collective. Yeah, I think I think on the smaller kind of localized scale, right, I think a lot of what we've been able to, to do and what we've been having conversations and thinking about is to to Brett's point is you know, what do those marketing assets look like? They're a little bit different than they were, you know, four or five months ago. Um, and how do we now adapt that to the to this space, right? Like the, the virtual world and what we live in, the online tournament world. Uh, and I, I agree with both of you. Like, you know, right now, it's the same point of what you said about stocks in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, like things are really dirt cheap. And I imagine that there's, you know, if you reach out, we've I've, we've done this experiment. We've reached out to various podcasts to find out what the advertising cost is as buyers, not as sellers, but as buyers. Um, and that price is continuing to, to decrease. And so now I think there is an opportunity, I think, for the smaller guys. There's not a there's not a company out there that I know of. Maybe there is, but not certainly one that I don't, I'm, I'm aware of that's out there trying to help the little guys understand how to get into esports. But, you know, like to your point, Marcus, about the real estate and the Call of Duty, like the reason that the, it does fit their brand is there's a good chance they sell to families and there's a good chance those families have kids that are under the age of 18 and between the ages of 12 and 18. And I guarantee you that they play that the dad plays the game with them, right. And connects on probably with the grandpa at night. So I, I think the smaller brands, if we can get them out of the idea of like, Hey, this man, does, this doesn't fit my brand because of the content or because it's violent or because of that, we just say, look, there's a lot of eyeballs on gaming right now. And it's a really cool experience and it's far better than throwing up a radio ad in a lot of ways. Uh, I think you can maybe start to get people over that hump, but um, it's just going to be, it's just going to be kind of a wait and see game, I think. Yeah. And one, one of the things that'll be interesting to watch over the course of the next few months is what the traditional sports leagues do will have a trickle down effect from a, from a sponsorship perspective um, across, you know, every industry. But if, you know, if the traditional sports leagues are not playing for an extended period of time or are playing in front of no fans at some point, brand dollars that would have gone into, into that market, um, you know, some of them will just be, you know, cut from budgets and et cetera. Um, but at some point those marketing budgets are, will potentially be spent elsewhere. You know, not necessarily with esports, but that's certainly an area where, um, you know, I think anybody, anybody in the industry is probably, you know, that has something to sell is probably keeping an eye on that dynamic. 
Yeah, that's a good point from Brent, and it's something I've been trying to drill home a lot recently is that it's not it's not just one esports team versus another esports team. It's money in esports versus extra Facebook marketing. It's versus hiring two more employees, and that was really drilled home to me. With uh, we had a potential potential strategic investment that that approached us about it. And, you know, talking to them and you know, we started talking about esports multiples in the market. And obviously with us, our company, we don't have a 22x multiple like some teams do, but still it's it, it might be higher than some of the other industries because of our growth potential. But, you know, their explanation to me was we're not looking at you versus an esports team versus an esports league to invest in. We're looking at you versus a mining company versus a Facebook marketing agency um, versus, you know, a pizzeria chain. So I think it's important to understand that too in esports when you're trying to sell because I think a lot of people say, you know, what's $60,000 to McDonald's? They can throw me that for an esports team. It means nothing. But well, yeah, $60,000 is a full-time employee that could make someone's life much easier or that could potentially make McDonald's a million dollars a year just by hiring a $60,000 social media employee that knows what they're doing. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a great point. And one of the first things that, you know, that we try to understand when we're talking to a potential partner to the extent that they'll be transparent about it is getting a sense of where does the where does the budget come from, right? Is it does it sit in a broad marketing budget? Does it sit, um, you know, in something more specific? And helping to understand at a you know at a micro level what what might be driving um, the decision makers um, is is something that you can't always figure that out. And and it sort of depends on how open a conversation somebody's willing to have with you about about how that works. But when you can figure it out, it's usually pretty insightful. Brett, I have a question for you on that. Like the brands that have engaged with you today and the, put sponsorship dollars in today, like wh- I guess what what are they hoping to get out of it, or why are, are they just is it because it's esports and it's just part of their portfolio, or is it a marketing budget, or are they really wanting to target and get something out of it? Yeah, it, it, I would say it's a combination of things. Um, at the end of the day, we haven't we they all they all want to make sure that they're seeing you know seeing some sort of ROI at the end of the day, um, but it varies, right? And sure. some of them are looking to you know to obvi- you know stating the obvious here, but obviously reaching a little bit younger of a demographic. Um, We've definitely done some deals with potential partners that are a little bit smaller um, dollar value wise because we we recognize that they are new to the esports space, that they that they're looking to get their feet wet and that they're not going to do that with, you know, with a six figure spend. And to give you an example, there was a point where we were looking at. we were talking to two different two different brands uh, ahead of launch weekend, uh, Call of Duty League launch weekend, and both of them we had been targeting for significant, you know, jersey patch and a ton of social and digital content, etc. Um, neither of them were interested in that big of a partnership, and both of them wanted to do you know a modest a, a modest dollar value wise to again get their feet wet. And with one of the brands, we felt like it did not make sense to um, to take that step uh, because they were a brand that knew the esports space, was very familiar with it, didn't need sort of the that training wheels um, approach. And then there was another another brand that this was going to be the first esports partnership, and there was no question in our mind that that strategically it was the right move. Um, 
to work with them, even if we were, you know, essentially discounting um, what we were selling uh, by a, by a fair amount. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit different in, in every case. Um, but in, in, in all cases, we look at it as, you know, these are long-term conversations that we're having. And if we meet with somebody from a brand um, that's not ready to spend in esports today, you know, that doesn't mean that they won't be ready to spend a year from now or two or three years from now. And so that's really the outlook that we take into those conversations. It's a lot of education and it might truly be a three to five year sales cycle with, with sure. sales cycle with some of these major brands. No, that makes sense. I, I want to, uh, there's a couple of questions I want to pull up here. These will be kind of rapid fire from different, uh, you know, different parts of the space, but I want to try to pull these up here and get these answered. Thanks for jumping in on stream guys. And, uh, putting these questions in there. So Peter's asking, does the value of virtual events exceed live events when measuring engagement metrics? Yeah, I could, I could take a quick crack, sure. yeah. crack at that. I mean, it really depends on what assets your organization controls. So for an, as an example, one of the things I think the CDL has done a great job of is making more assets available in the broadcast to their teams that in in the previous you know, pre-COVID um, were exclusive to the league to sell those assets, um, but recognizing now that teams have make goods that they need that they need to accomplish with partners, uh, CDL has has made more 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 opportunities to give brands partner excuse me um, brands partnered with the, with the local teams and the broadcast. So, you know, we could certainly argue that we could, we're host, we're hosting the online home series, um, not this weekend, but two weekends from now. And just from, you know, without looking at the numbers instinctively, I would say that we probably can create far more, uh, you know, far more impressions and, you know, hard data metrics than we could um, if, if we were hosting the live event itself. Now, on the other hand, hosting a live event is a much more rich experience. Uh, so you have to work a little bit harder um, to create that digitally in some cases. And that's what we've been trying to do with those watch parties that we talked about earlier. I'll say, what are your thoughts then? The follow-up is running virtual events alongside of the live event itself as a kind of a experience, potentially, potentially doing both and having both alongside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we haven't talked about it as an organization, but there's no question in my mind that a year from now, we would be doing, continuing some version of our Discord watch parties alongside, you know, watch parties back in, you know, in bars or establishments. Um, so yeah, I think we're, the the necessity is the mother of invention, right? And, and there are things, there are 100% things that we're doing right now that we think could be successful uh, when we're, when we're back to, you know, back to business as usual, whenever that is. Hey, Marcus, is there any, any of your companies that you work with working on improving the viewer experience for some people? I've done a lot of talking with like the, um, you know, some VR streamers and people like that saying that they feel like Twitch right now is kind of viewership 1.0. It's really linear. You can't get involved as much. I'd be interested to, to hear from your side. I've seen a company uh, that just got funded on uh, Fig that is now part of Republic that is trying to create more engagement around all live events. It's called uh, Hero Live. I don't work with them directly, but I've, I've had some conversations with their CEO, and, and I think we're starting to see more of that. There's another company I know of that's trying to create um, 
fractional, um, not, not gambling, but wagering within a live event. So instead of it being for actual dollars, it's potentially for like 50% off of popcorn, you know, or, or t-shirt, something of that nature, so that you can create more specific, more granular engagement from moment to moment within a, a live sports event, which could also translate to esports. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess another example along that line that I completely forgot about was Unicorn released a bingo product a long time ago when they were when when they were working with um, the Berlin International Gaming Team, the Counter Strike team, where you could, you know, set up a, a bingo and certain things would happen, an injured diffuse or a triple kill or things like that, and they lined up. Then you would unlock the possibility to maybe get something in the arena, like you said, half price popcorn, or maybe win a free raise a mouse or some sponsored product. Yeah, it's interesting. Mark, Marcus mentioned gambling. I mean, that's an industry that anytime, if you want to look at where things are going, you know, watch the gambling industry because they're always at the forefront of how to move the needle on things. And if, you know, if the current situation that we're in, it, it extends out longer, um, you know, you'll you'll see uh, you already see the sports books are you know are starting to to carry um, esports and some of them did already but you'll continue to see more of that um, and that's potentially an area where you could see tremendous growth over time where you know if if post covid the sports books continue to carry esports events more people you know that'll just continue to deepen the engagement of fans but even short term that's you know that's something that keep an eye on what what the gambling industry does because they're they're highly incentivized to be creative in how they do things and you know the marketplace will probably yeah. follow in some form yeah some of the architectural partners we've worked with that's been a big focus of theirs is is what are the future of stadiums what is the future of broadcast right and how do we start to use things you know, like a uh, cognitive AI to, to put into the broadcast and do some predictive analytics. I think 5G will start to, you'll, will be a huge thing for gambling. Uh, you see it now in traditional sports in South Korea where in their broadcast today on a OTT or third screen, you can actually, you know, do prop betting in real time. Uh, all that stuff, I, it's really just an underlying technology that exists today that's just not ubiquitous. But I think once that stuff becomes ubiquitous, specifically in the broadcast um, and, you know, some of the stuff, just a shameless plug for live CGI and some of this work we've been doing with 2K League. Like I really could see that virtual environment kind of being a good driving force. Um, I've had a few conversations with big blockchain, big cognitive AI, you know, blue chip type companies where, you know, they're saying, hey, the missing piece to this is the endpoint mechanism, right? Something like a broadcast, like a Twitch, to your point, Chris, kind of version 1.0, you know, but if there's an underlying software, which they're out there, they're starting to become more ubiquitous that, you know, they can start to attach those endpoints and really start to drive like cognitive behavior on the audience. Like I was explained to me in the sense, like, if everybody that walks through the door today, in order to find out everybody that walks through the door, what their favorite League of Legends character is, who they play with, how much money they've spent in the game, etc., it's kind of hard to do without really invasive sensors. However, if we can get somebody to a Twitch stream where we've got that stuff embedded, we can grab their last credit card or their purchasing history, and we can tell you about a thousand people that have watched the Twitch stream, how many of them bought Mountain Dew in the last 30 days. So I think that when those technologies really start to 
get deployed out into the marketplace uh, and start to be integrated at a high level, I think that you're going to start to see the value of that virtual space become more and more valuable. And then I think when COVID's over and we're comfortable coming back into the to the to the arenas, every major architectural firm I've been working with that builds these stadiums or redesigns these stadiums, the clients that they talk to are all asking them, how do we get gambling? How do we get blockchain? How do we get 5G? How do we start to have a mixed reality environment? And I start to see those lines slowly start to be blurred. And I think COVID has put a massive accelerator on these sports teams or these franchise owners or these spaces specifically really putting a good hard look at that. I don't know if you saw that was uh, the Argentinian football um, league just announced that they're going to be launching a crypto for their own virtual uh, sports league. So I, I think that's smart. You start to see other teams start to adopt that strategy so they can create some kind of persistent experience from one event to the next and, and potentially even drawing older demographics into esports because now they have that bridge. The token represents the bridge. Yeah, and that's and, and the other point just to wrap that up, I guess, is just the it's amazing to me. I was just talking about this a couple of days ago, but you know, the engagement on on a on a live streaming platform hasn't changed in a very long time. It's pretty much the same. And in fact, some people may say that it's 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 not as enjoyable as it was, you know, maybe even a couple of years ago, chats out, out of control and things like that. So it's like, what's keeping me here when I gotta deal with that? So it's it's I don't know, it's really interesting. Uh, Iran, because the 1.0 aspect of it, because I've had that conversation before multiple times, what's what's 2.0, what's 3.0, what's the next level of engagement uh, for someone to, to stick around and be and be at this string? Like, what, what is it going to take? So and you're having a convergence of um, of crypto, um, of all these uh, of the gambling space. Um, actually, I have a online poker background. You're back in the heyday, 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 like 03, 04. And it, there's and I, so I've, I'm very intimate and, you know, with experience with that. And it's when that, that's significant momentum. That's not here yet, in my opinion, at scale when it comes to esports. So, um, you know, I'm interested to see how that looks over the next few years and then casino operators and things like that. I mean, things are just, just over, I mean, just gone. Right. And, and if you're ignoring what's happening right now, then their companies, uh, you know, they're not adding that extra layer to their operation of business. And a lot, a lot aren't paying attention to. I talked to Ari Fox with CEC a couple, a couple of weeks ago, and he said they was having conversations, and that they're, they're, they've been ignoring it. And if you if you've ignored it and you don't have a digital platform to engage, then that's where you are. Yeah, I'd suggest for anyone to take a look at Live.tv. They're working a lot of things like this uh, with virtual reality broadcasting, kind of mixed reality. Um, Things like in Beat Saber, where members in the, in the chat can type exclamation mark bomb and send a bomb at them in game, where donation of bits change the game to look like a Guitar Hero, you know, kind of power stance thing, where all of the the screen is you know blown up and there's all exciting stuff and there's a person's name all over the screen and things like that too. And that's where I stole that kind of viewership 1.0 from from their from their founder um, AJ or, or Doctor Doom as he's known. You know, he's they're they're a big believer in trying to work a lot in that space. All right, guys. Well, as far as time, we're actually out of time uh, when it comes to the panel. This this is this was an awesome, awesome panel. I want to thank you all for for being here. I want to thank everybody in chat for all the questions uh, that you guys put in on YouTube and LinkedIn. Uh, I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Um, I do want to take a few minutes though to go uh, down the board, starting with Jake. Um, how can people get connected to you? 
um, because they've been really insightful conversations and hopefully this can uh, drive some networking as well. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn's always great. So happy to take any connections, feel any questions. Esportsupply.com is a great way to check out what we do. Also a great way to contact me. So those two places for sure. Yeah, I would say for anybody uh, watching, um, LinkedIn is probably the best way to get directly in touch. Um, but you can follow Rocker on, twi on Twitter at Rocker, R-O-K-K-R. Um, and I'm at Diamond underscore Soda, S-O-T-A. You can reach me too on LinkedIn, uh, Marcus Blockchain Howard. I'm also on Twitter. There are two of me. The two is spelled with the number two. I guess it's not spelled. It's there are the number two and then of me. Eric? Um, yeah, I guess LinkedIn, uh, Eric Alexander, otherwise Twitter, um, or Air Sports account is at Air Sports Inc. Yeah, for me, you can head to bigesports.gg or um, on Twitter or LinkedIn, which is Smithy Mayo. So Smith with a Y, then M A Y O. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. Just want to thank everyone who has done a five-star rating or review. If you enjoy the content, this is a way to get the word out about the Level Up experience, and I really do appreciate it. A couple things, if you want to get connected uh, outside of the podcast, um, we do a live stream on YouTube and LinkedIn. So just search Level Up Experience on YouTube uh, to be a part of the live stream there. We also do LinkedIn Live, as mentioned. Search my name, Chris Reed, C-R-I-S. R-E-E-D to get notifications on either platform. Thank you all for all the support and we'll see you on the next episode.